This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's really a great pleasure for me to introduce our distinguished uh, guest speaker and visiting professor, uh, Dr. Chris Bolas. Uh, Dr. Bolas is professor and uh, chief of the Division of Gastroenterology at UC Davis. Uh, he has a really long and exceptional track record in research and also education before he was appointed uh, division chief. He was actually the GI fellowship director for 10 years and has mentored numerous young physicians. Uh, Dr. Bolas is really well-renowned in his research work in cholestatic liver disease, PBC-PSC, trying to elucidate the uh, immunologic basis and also developing therapeutics. I don't think anybody has more uh, ongoing therapeutic trials in this country than Dr. Bolas. So uh, please uh, give a very well, warm welcome to Dr. Bolas. He will be talking about the new frontiers in the management of PSC. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for the invitation to come uh, talk. It's, uh, it's great to see Tony Bass here and talk at his, uh, his conference. Uh, last time I think we met was in Napa. If I remember right, we were having dinner, and you were telling me about going to Full Belly Farm. I don't know if you remember this. Probably not, but brings back memories. Um, so what I'll be talking about really is the management of PSC, and as you all know, right now there are no currently proven medical therapies, so really the treatment is liver transplantation, but I'm not a transplanter, so I'm not going to talk about that. So although it's a transplant conference, and I realized I should probably talk a little bit about transplant and PSC, I'm not going to. But there's all the other things you have to think about with PSC um, outside of transplant. So first of all, I want to talk a little bit about the natural history of PSC, which is highly variable, very unpredictable. Um, but there are some lessons that we're starting to learn about the natural history, uh, and so I wanted to share some of the updates on that with you. And I think it'll help you help inform how you look at this disease and how you talk about the disease with your parent, uh, patients, rather, um, who are always quite uh, concerned about this diagnosis, of course. Um, I will touch on some of the treatments that are currently being developed for the liver disease. I'll touch a little bit on the IBD. I don't know if anyone here manages IBD, but if you are dealing with inflammatory bowel disease in these patients, there's a little bit of data uh, there that might uh, um, help guide you in terms of how you manage these patients, and then really the monitoring of these patients as they uh, either progress or don't progress to liver transplantation. So this is the obligatory slide about PSC, um, just showing the... um, the strictures of the large ducts with the dilation, uh, the uh, concentric fibrosis, uh, and, of course, the association with inflammatory bowel disease. In terms of the pathogenesis of PSC, now, we really don't have a really good handle on, on this, but there's a conceptual framework we can use to think about it. And if I can get the pointer to work, there it goes. So we think about things in terms of the initiation of the disease. Can I have the, uh, okay. On the top right, the initiation of the disease. There are both genetic and environmental factors. 
uh, that predispose individuals to this condition. And things we know after large genome studies is there's probably about 20 genes identified so far, but still the big driver genetically is HLA, um, which was associated with PSE some 20 or 30 years ago. Environmental factors, still the same things in terms of uh, inflammatory bowel disease, non-smoking is a risk factor. Um, but So in individuals that have the genetic risk, they have the environmental exposures, there's clearly a link between the gut inflammation and the liver. We think it begins in the gut um, in some sort of inflammatory reaction here, similar to IBD, though slightly different than either ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, which then leads to this inflammatory response that uh, traffics to the liver and causes inflammation around the bile ducts, leading to injury of the biliary epithelium and altered bile acid uh, secretion, resulting in further injury, chronic inflammation, um, fibrosis, and ultimately the, um, the manifestations we see in terms of PSC, the clinical entity. And so when I get further in the talk, some of the therapies we're talking about really target all these aspects uh, of the disease. Now, just to, to get into the natural history, I wanted to highlight three real cases to uh, illustrate how variable this disease is. This first case is a fairly typical patient we think about. Uh, it's a man when he was in his teens, about 18, he developed his first episode of colitis, presented with bloody diarrhea, and at the initial evaluation had cholestatic liver enzymes. He had a cholangiogram, a liver biopsy, all of which was consistent with PSC. His colitis got under control. He seemed to be doing well. He continued to have abnormal liver tests. Uh, and over about 10 or 12 years, his liver disease progressed to when he got splenomegaly and at the age of 31 underwent a living donor liver transplantation at, at UCSF. Thank you very much. Um, the other case I'm presenting is a, a man who was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis similarly in his teens, never had any liver problems as far as he knew. He was uh, finally being cared by one of my colleagues when he was in his late uh, 50s had a little blip in his liver test, not even cholestatic liver test, and had an MRI ordered, and that showed PSC. He came and saw me. He was still doing well, but within a couple of years, he got more cholestatic, and eventually we diagnosed him with cholangiocarcinoma. He just got transplanted at Mayo Clinic about a month ago. Just heard he got discharged uh, this week, um, and hopefully we'll do fine with that but seemed to have developed the, the disease probably around the same time, but went on for a much longer period before reaching his liver transplant. And the last case is really the most complicated one. This is a man who had ulcerative colitis also in his teens, developed a colorectal cancer in his 30s, then had a cholangiocarcinoma in his 50s. Um, this actually was treated with chemotherapy and resection, and when they resected the specimen, it was actually all necrotic. He still hadn't been diagnosed with PSC somehow, and I'm not sure about why. But anyway, he eventually was diagnosed with PSC when he started to decompensate from his cirrhosis. He then went on to UCSF again, got his liver transplant, and on the explant, they found a one-centimeter incidental cholangiocarcinoma. He's now about five years out from his transplant, doing amazingly well. He's probably the healthiest 72 or 73-year-old I've ever seen. Um, but again, this whole spectrum of disease is what we can see in an individual that develops ulcerative colitis in their teens uh, and probably has the disease from about that time on. 
And this is probably why when we look at transplant-free survival in PSC, we see this wide range of survival. So in the old days, um, we used to think that the uh, median survival of PSC was quite poor on the order of 10 to 12 years. There's this one outlier from Yale in the early days that thought it was fairly benign. But most of the other studies estimated that the median survival was about 12 years. Now, more recently, a study from the Netherlands kind of um, highlights why this is probably not um, completely accurate or doesn't represent the whole pool of PSC. Here in the blue is the median survival in the Netherlands from centers that have liver transplant programs, and in the orange are the non-transplant centers where the median survival is over 20 years. And this has also been seen in another uh, cohort um, from, from Israel. And in this bar here, the most recent study is from the International PSC Study Group, and this, of course, is mainly specialized center, most of which have liver transplant programs, again, showing the median survival under 15 years. So I think when you talk to your patients, you know, it, the more accurate estimation, if they don't have evidence of advanced disease, is probably they've got at least 20 years on average of survival before needing liver transplantation. Now, some of the other outcomes in terms of liver, other than liver transplantation that we have to be aware of are liver can or rather cancers associated with PSC. So again, if we look at the older studies, most of the deaths shown here in orange are liver-related deaths. This is all pre-transplant, and as this transplant was introduced, those deaths were replaced with liver transplant. Um, and so now in later years here in the green, are those that are PSC-related cancer deaths. So while we get our patients to, to liver transplant, we haven't really impacted the, the um, effect of this disease in those cancers such as cholangiocarcinoma, gallbladder cancers, and colorectal cancers. So cholangiocarcinoma, um, of course, this is the one we're really scared about. The relative risk has increased about a thousandfold. The prevalence is quite wide-ranging, anywhere from uh, 5% up to 30% of patients. Seems to be in Scandinavia. They see it more frequently than we do. Importantly, the highest risk is within the first year of diagnosis. So within the first year, it's about 5%, and then after that, it's about a 1% annual incidence. In gallbladder cancer, although it's not as common, um, we do see it uh, in some patients and if we see a gallbladder polyp, we're particularly concerned uh, about uh, those polyps even at smaller sizes, eight millimeters uh, or more, um, because there's a high rate of having uh, a dysplastic nodule there. Colorectal cancer also increased in this group, of course. Um, incidence and prevalence rates are variable, um, but the risk of colorectal cancer is five to tenfold increase even compared to patients with just UC without PSC. It occurs at a younger age. These lesions tend to be right-sided. Um, and the rates tend to be going down, as we've seen with uh, ulcerative colitis in general. Um, and so whether that's because we're better at treating colitis, the disease behavior is different, we don't know. Um, but uh, it remains a, 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 a concern nevertheless. In addition, there are the non-biliary, uh, malignant biliary complications such as dominant strictures. Um, if any of you do ERCP in here, um, or when you look at these cholangiograms, trying to define a dominant stricture is quite difficult. And it's something actually, there's a group of us working on 
trying to come up with a definition of what a dominant stricture is. Now, there's an ERCP definition based on size and length, um, but really functionally trying to find that is quite difficult. But in general, when we talk about dominant strictures, they occur in about a third to half of patients, and they are associated with a reduced transplant-free survival. So when they're present, regardless of how we define them, that is of a concern. And then bacterial cholangitis is also a frequent complication um, of PSC, and about half of those on the liver transplant waiting list will develop bacterial cholangitis, although, interestingly, it's not associated with an increase in removal or death um, of those patients. So trying to get a better handle on the natural history of PSC has been quite difficult because it's a relatively rare disease. And so some of the things that we've been doing uh, have included working with patient organizations such as PSC Partners. This is a national organization. It's a great resource for your patients with PSC if they're looking for information and support. They have an annual conference that I think every patient that's gone to this has come back just raving about. One of the efforts they've developed is, de uh, is a patient registry where patients can self-report their, their, their medical history and their symptoms. Uh, and one of the things we found in the first 800 patients uh, in this study is that similar to other cohorts, um, the age is the same. They have a lot of IBD. Um, the difference is they tend to be more uh, female than male. But their median survival also is, is quite good at about 20 years. What it also tells us are what are some of the symptoms our patients are dealing with. Um, so if you look at things like severity of pruritus, the majority of patients have either little to no pruritus, but there is this group over here that has a, a significant amount of pruritus, so itching remains a problem. Abdominal pain also. The more, majority of them have none to just a little bit in terms of bothering their lives, but about half will report some significant abdominal pain. The other interesting symptom that came out of this that I wasn't aware of was um, difficulty sleeping is an incredible issue with our patients uh, with PSC. Now, trying to get a little bit more into the weeds of the variability of PSC, there are several different groups or phenotypes we can think about of PSC and how, how these might impact their natural history. Um, we can break them down by IBD status, whether they have ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, uh, indeterminate colitis, or no IBD. We can think about age. This does occur in pediatric patients. They're the young adults and the older patients. Um, there's overlap with autoimmune hepatitis we have to think of. There are the strictures, um, where they're located, whether there's a small duct PSC entity, which I'll talk about a little bit, uh, as well as the classic large duct PSC. I'm also going to discuss a little bit about race and ethnicity. We're learning much more about this. We always think about PSC being a, a disease of Caucasians, but in fact we're learning it's not in, uncommon in African Americans. And then there's been a lot of talk about IgG4, and the IgG4 st uh, story in PSC is quite complicated. There is a subgroup of patients with PSC that have elevated IgG4s, and there's been some data to suggest that they have um, a worse prognosis, but that's sort of been refuted in more recent studies. In fact, in a recent clinical trial, 
which looked specifically at this, there was no difference in the behavior of those patients with high IgG4 and those without. So I think the IgG4 in PSC story is not that exciting. It may just be that patients with more advanced disease have higher IgG4s. Now, there's also the IgG4-related diseases, which can present with sclerosing cholangitis that looks very much like PSC. This we see in older men without IBD, much more common in Asians, and that's a completely separate entity and is very responsive to um, immunosuppressants, so we don't want to comp- confuse those two things. Um, so this, the bottom line is IgG4 elevation in PSC can occur, but it doesn't necessarily impact the disease. So we'll leave that out. Instead, we'll replace it with sex. Um, there are small differences between men and women with this disease. Now, a lot of what we learned about all these things came from this international PSC study group. Um, it's involved a large number of um, centers. Um, you'll see it's international, but it's primarily Europe. There are some uh, North American centers involved. And the study uh, I'll talk about involved over 7,000 patients, 2,600 died or had a liver transplant, and 720 developed hepatobiliary malignancies, most of which were cholangiocarcinomas. And what was the main findings of this were that sex, the, the type of ducts involved, the age of the patient at diagnosis, and the type of IBD were what really had an impact on outcomes. So in terms of sex, um, men did worse than women statistically, but whether this is clinically significant or means anything to us in the clinic is probably uh, not so much. Uh, but men did slightly worse in terms of transplant-free survival, and they had a higher risk of hepatobiliary malignancies compared to women. I think the bottom line here, though, is women might do a little better, but they're still at risk. More significant was the type of PSC that the patients had. So in blue is a small duct PSC, in green is the overlap with autoimmune hepatitis, and the red is the classic large duct PSC. Now, these diagnoses were dependent on the investigator's interpretation, so there were not any specific Um, criteria used for this. And I'd say that in terms of small duct PSC, again, the definition of that has not been consistent. I think for most of us, if somebody has a normal cholangiogram, a good quality cholangiogram that's normal, a liver biopsy that looks like sclerosing cholangitis and inflammatory bowel disease, we'd feel comfortable that that is small duct PSC. If there's no IBD and all they have is a normal cholangiogram and sclerosing cholangitis on their liver biopsy, we have to be concerned that there are other causes there. More commonly now, we're, or more, more frequently, we're finding that adults can present with some of these genetic cholestatic conditions uh, that can look very much like small duct PSC. So this may or may not really reflect true PSC, but if, if you have someone with small duct, they generally do much better. The interesting thing here is we probably would have predicted if you had overlap with autoimmune hepatitis, you would have done worse with your uh, disease. But in fact, they do a little bit better than just the classic large duck. And then if we look at the cholangiocarcinoma risk, and this is what probably would impact us the most in clinic in terms of whether we want to be doing surveillance for cholangiocarcinoma in these patients, we can see that those with small duct PSC and the PSC autoimmune hepatitis overlap have a relatively low risk of cholangiocarcinoma, particularly compared to the classic large duck, which is really the group that has the highest risk of cholangiocarcinoma. 
Age of diagnosis is important. Those diagnosed at a later age have a worse prognosis, both in terms of transplant free survival as well as risk of cholangiocarcinoma. And then if we overlay um, some data from another consortium involving just pediatric patients, we see the same sort of thing where these patients diagnosed under the age of 18 have a survival very similar to the adults at a young age. Uh, IBD type has a bit of an influence on outcomes. Crohn's disease does a bit better than the other types of um, inflammatory bowel disease or no IBD. Um, not too much difference in either group in terms of cholangiocarcinoma risk. So the other factor I think we should be paying attention to is, is race and ethnicity. Um, this was a study we did on liver transplant listings up until 2009. It was published a few years ago now. Um, but increasingly we were seeing um, patients with, that are of African-American descent, African descent with PSC. And we looked at the um, frequency of PSC among African-Americans listed for liver transplantation, and we saw it was very similar to those, um, the percentage of whites listed for liver transplantation. So 5.4% of whites listed have a diagnosis of PSC, 6.4% um, uh, of those among uh, black patients. Another study recently published by um, David Goldberg looked at several different centers in terms of the percentage of patients with PSC in their practice relative to the uh, percentage of African Americans in their general population. They generally matched up quite well, again, confirming this idea that PSC is not rare among African Americans. The other thing that we found um, in a group of um, uh, centers, as well as in the transplant uh, database, the UNOS database, is that among blacks, there's a lower frequency of inflammatory bowel disease, primarily due to a lower rate of ulcerative colitis, and that there's no male predominance in these patients. They also presented at a younger age and with a higher MELD score, suggesting they have a more um, uh, aggressive disease, which has been seen in some other autoimmune liver diseases. But there's a lot more to be learned here, I think, in terms of PSC and African Americans. This has led us to do uh, to set up a large consortium in North America in which UCSF and all actually the, the centers in Northern California are participating uh, to better delve into this uh, question about ethnic diver uh, uh, diversity in, in uh, the, the behavior of PSC uh, and to run some clinical trials as well. Now in clinical practice, um, there's probably no role for uh, prognostic models. There have been several that have been developed over the years. The Mayo uh, model is the one you're probably most familiar with. Um, more recently, in the last year, there have been two additional models. This Presto model out of the Mayo used machine learning to, to try to predict outcomes. Um, and there's an Amsterdam-Oxford model that came out. They're maybe slightly better than the Mayo model, but if you actually look at what they include, they essentially all use um, markers of liver function, such as bilirubin and albumin, portal hypertension, such as variceal bleeding uh, or platelets, and then more recently, a few other uh, measures. Um, but they're really not accurate enough for us to use in individual patients and really only are useful in late-stage disease still. 
There's been some work in terms of transient elastography as a, as a way to try to um, predict how patients are doing with PSC. There's data from the French showing that it does correlate relatively well with liver biopsy stage, so it's, it's accurate to some degree there as it is in other liver diseases. Uh, it's important to recognize that uh, with time, the rate of fibrosis, or at least liver stiffness, increases exponentially as patients get more advanced. The other concern about using uh, liver fibro or liver stiffness uh, in PSC is that it's a very patchy, heterogeneous disease, so you may not get an accurate measure from the, the area of sampling. And also, it can increase very rapidly with cholestasis. So if you measure it when a patient has, happens to be having an obstruction, it can be elevated and not really re reflect the amount of fibrosis. Um, this just shows that it uh, can accurately predict um, outcomes if you look at changes in liver stiffness over time. One of the areas of interest that might be slightly better than using uh, the typical fiber scan measure or, or shear wave technology is to use MR elastography. Um, this allows us to measure a larger area of the liver. We've been doing some work um, with other centers looking comparing MR elastography with um, uh, fiber scan to see if this might offer us more uh, uh, consistency uh, and accuracy in terms of predicting outcomes, and that works ongoing. So what about treating your patients? What do you do when you have the patient in your clinic? So, um, and you tell them they've got PSC, um, they've got a 20-year uh, median survival, um, it, what medications can you offer them? Well, Urso is the kind of old go-to, and the question is, should we be prescribing it or not? And I don't think I necessarily have the answer for you. Um, I will say that, right, if it worked, we'd know it by now. It's, there have been multiple, multiple trials in PSC with this using very different doses. Um, it didn't work uh, here. It hasn't worked in Scandinavia. And, in fact, as you all know, I'm sure the very high doses of 28 to 30 milligrams per kilogram per day while it improved liver biochemistry, patients actually did worse on Urso than they did on placebo. So maybe a practical approach would be to offer them treatment if they want it. Um, some patients want to do something. Uh, if they have elevated liver tests, um, I, today if I saw a patient, I would offer them that. Yesterday I might not have, and tomorrow I may not, but right now um, I'm flexible. <laughs> Take the data you've got. Um, if the liver tests improve, um, then continue it. Uh, if they don't, generally we would stop it. Um, now, some patients may not want to take it, and I think that's fine. About 75% of the patients uh, appear to be taking it currently based on the PSC Partners Registry. Um, so most patients that have an elevated alkaline phosphatase or otherwise uh, qualify, we try to get into clinical trials uh, if they're interested. Now, pay, we don't, I don't offer this to patients, but clearly this is the bugaboo in the room. Um, when the patient comes in and asks you, doctor, will you prescribe vancomycin for me um, because there's all this great data and it cures people, um, there's not a lot of great data yet. Um, there is this data in the pediatric population um, from Stanford, which uh, was a case series suggesting improvements in liver tests. They provided some histology that suggested it might be uh, beneficial as well. Uh, there was also the study from the Mayo Clinic, um, which was a total of about seven or eight patients. Uh, there was a statistically significant decline, but 
you'll see that maybe it's due to just one or two patients driving that change. And this disease, alkaline phosphatase, changes so rapidly and, and frequently, it's hard to interpret this. So there's more data to come out on vancomycin, more case series. There's now a recently funded FDA study to look at um, vancomycin in adults, and there's also likely an NI study in children to be done. So hopefully we'll have the information on vancomycin and whether or not it's effective or not. Um, but currently I would not recommend prescribing it uh, in your patients with PSE because of the potential for developing VRE and who knows what else, uh, which is therapy and, and with no evidence that it's effective. Some of the areas we've really been excited about in terms of trying uh, for new therapies in, in PSE really are uh, targeting this linkage between the gut and the liver. Uh, there's a lot of interesting information on the aberrant trafficking of intestinal lymphocytes, which are targeted to the intestine by the combination of alpha-4, beta-7 integrins on the lymphocytes and MADCAM and other chemokine receptors on the endothelium of the, in the intestine, which allows them to, to know to go there. Uh, and it was originally thought that these homing mechanisms were specific to the liver, but it turns out they're also expressed in the liver and particularly in PSC. You can find these gut-derived lymphocytes in the liver of PSC patients, so the thought was if we can block this, we might be able to improve the disease. And there's a therapy for that, vetalizumab, um, which is very effective in IBD, uh, to see if that would work. And we recently published this data looking at um, liver biochemistry changes with vetalizumab uh, in PSC patients treated. And there's over 100 of them in the study. Um, and as you can see, it doesn't look too promising because we see that uh, you know, the majority of patients um, either have an alkaline phosphatase rise or, or just don't change. Um, it generally appeared to be safe, um, and this is largely due to um, just the variability of the disease. Um, so 20% got a, a decrease in their alkaline phosphatase. It was effective in treating the IBD, though, so if you have a PSC patient with IBD and needs to be on vetalizumab, it appears to be safe and effective for their IBD, but unclear if it's effective for their liver. More, re more rigorously studied uh, trials, um, which have shown some promising results uh, and hopefully will lead to some approved uh, and efficacious therapies in the not-too-distant future, uh, include NOR-ERSO. This is a a drug similar to urso-deoxycholic acid, but has some properties that um, allow it to avoid enterohepatic circulation and uh, enter, yeah, enterohepatic circulation, but undergoes cholestatic shunting, uh, cholohepatic shunting, uh, and um, uh, drives some protective mechanisms of the biliary tree. And this is being done only in Europe, and this shows some very nice changes in alkaline phosphatase independent of urso and is going on to a phase three study now in Europe. Um, and so we'll see what that shows, probably be a few years before we have those results back. Obeticolic acid, a new therapy we have now for PBC, is also recently reported results in PSC, a little bit lower doses than typically were used in, in PBC. This also showed some uh, effic efficacy in terms of reducing alkaline phosphatase and uh, may go on to phase three studies. We're waiting to hear about that. And then another drug that also uh, acts on the biliary tree uh, called NGM282, it interestingly did not do what we thought it would do in terms of uh, biochemistry improvements, uh, but 
actually, at least in serum markers of fibrosis, showed some improvements there. Uh, one of those markers, the ELF score, the other Pro-C3, these are measures that tell us, uh, uh, reflect fibrosis activity. Uh, and they were, what we really would care about is actually decreasing these. So while it didn't meet the endpoints of improved liver tests, it actually showed some uh, interesting results in terms of fibrosis markers, and we'll see if that moves on or not. So while we're waiting for these new therapies for our patients, um, which still are going to be likely years away, um, in addition to offering URSO, the other issue we have to deal with in our patients is management of malignancy. We don't have a lot of guidance on surveillance uh, for cholangiocarcinoma or other hepatobiliary malignancies in our patients with PSC. Um, There's weak evidence. There's one study from the Mayo Clinic suggesting that in patients that get surveillance, they have um, lower mortality, uh, but that's just one study, and there's, of course, all sorts of uh, biases in those sorts of studies. Um, We should also keep in mind that, as I mentioned earlier, there's variable risk among these patients. The first year, there's very high risk. And those that um, have small duct disease, as well as the children, are at very low risk of cholangiocarcinoma. So in those instances, surveillance is unlikely to have any benefit. We should also be thinking that all surveillance has some potential harms. We may identify um, things that aren't cholangiocarcinoma and lead to additional procedures of ERCP, biopsies that all have intended risks. And we really don't have guidelines on how to do it, although um, we've been developing some that hopefully will be published in the not-too-distant future, but really are just based on opinion and not a lot of evidence. So what I do, and again, this is, I, I will be the first to admit, not evidence-based, is to offer surveillance. I do alternating MRI and ultrasound every six months on most of my patients. I do at least an MRI annually. Um, Of course, if they're cirrhotic, we image every six months like we would any cirrhotic, although I have to say the evidence of HCC and cirrhosis with PSC is uh, suggested it's very low. Um, I also get a CA199 every six to 12 months with the understanding that it is neither sensitive nor specific for cholangiocarcinoma in these patients. And I don't recommend and we don't practice doing routine ERCP surveillance in these patients. I think that's an important message to send, uh, to send that uh, we don't want these patients being instrumented constantly. But we do have a low threshold for bile duct sampling if there are changes in the patient's clinical status or other concerns about cholangiocarcinoma or malignancies. And also, as I mentioned, with gallbladder polyps, even small polyps can um, uh, have uh, a dysplasia and go on to malignancies. So we want to have a low threshold for cholecystectomy in these patients, but of course, we have to weigh that against the, the risk of the surgery, particularly if they have advanced liver disease and will be looking at liver transplant in the near future. So it can't be a one-size-fits-all in those patients. In addition, our patients with PSC um, need to have a col- colonoscopy, and I think I'm sure you all understand this, um, even if they don't have symptoms. Many of these patients have asymptomatic quiescent colitis, it tends to be just right-sided. This is a patient not too recently. Um, this is their uh, ileal cecal valve and their cecum, mildly inflamed, um, several ulcers, um, and this is their, their left side, completely normal uh, uh, bowel. Uh, and so this is important, and if present, we should be offering them surveillance colonoscopies every one to two years. So just to finish up, 
I want to make uh, clear that the natural history of PSC is highly variable and unpredictable. Um, however, there are some things that can help guide us in terms of the age of diagnosis, the type of PSC, the sex of the patient, and the type of IBD. Um, and we really should be considering referral these, referring these patients to um, centers to get them in registries. This is a rare disease, and the more patients we can capture, um, the more we'll understand about it. Um, there remains no effective therapy at this time. We can try Urso, avoid vancomycin, um, and always consider referral for clinical trials of these patients. Um, there are several out there and many more to be opening soon. And so for current management of your patients, of course, monitoring their liver stage and functions to get them referred to liver transplant centers uh, at the appropriate time, looking for malignancies. I didn't touch on bone disease or fat-soluble vitamins, which are, of course, important in our patients with cholestatic liver disease, and also addressing their symptoms because until a patient becomes advanced, that's what they're dealing with is the paritis, the fatigue, the abdominal pain, et cetera. Um, so thank you very much for your time, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Yes. Uh, in your first slide, you mentioned uh, about inflammation involved in the PSC. But, and the pathology slide, uh, you don't see much of inflammation. What do we know about what type of cell or what a pathway significantly involved in the PSC? That's a, that's a great question. The, the, the question has to do with, in the pathology, you see these concentric bands uh, of fibrosis, but it's not a very inflammatory process, at least at that stage. There are other stages where you do see more inflammation. Um, and and uh, it's also important to recognize that when we take a liver biopsy, we may not really be looking at the initial insult. If you, there's some older studies looking back at brush biopsies uh, brushings, rather, of the biliary tree, and it seems to be a T-cell-mediated disease if you look at the infiltrate uh, on uh, brushings there. Um, in terms of the fibrosis, it looks, there's, there's macrophages, there's a lot of uh, TH7, or IL-17, I should say, um, positive cells in the liver of uh, PSC as well. They're all cholestatic liver disease, so IL-17 may also be playing an important role there. Um, but other than that, we don't have a good grasp on what are the both initiating and promulgating immune responses in the disease. Chris, um, that was a terrific talk. Thanks so much for, for that. It's terrific to have an update and to know kind of where we are with the new drugs because that's, yeah. of course, what we're very interested in. I was really interested in your recommendations about the surveillance because that's where I think there's really very little published. So yeah. can I ask you, do you adjust your surveillance recommendation based on age, meaning kind of implying duration of disease. Yeah. So I, 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 the only way I would adjust it is probably in the very young patient not do it. Um, it's clear that the age of diagnosis has a great impact, um, but it's also important to recognize that these, the data we're presenting spans all the way back to the 80s. The 80s did a long time ago now. It didn't seem like it, but now it is. Um, so I th the disease behavior, I think, may be changing over time, especially as we diagnose patients earlier in their disease, and so maybe the risk is lower. I don't know how to apply that in practice, though. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, it, it's, I do it at least annually uh, with an MRI. I, with the younger patient newly diagnosed um, after the first year or two, um, I'm probably less pushy for that and not doing every six months sort of 
And what's alternate. younger? I'm sorry? What's younger? Um, under 30. But again, this is like not, based on nothing but my own opinion and Because at times, you know, you'll get a radiology report that will suggest there's some changing in the beating pattern, maybe a little bit more of a dominant stricture. The biochemical results are exactly the same. The CA-199 are exactly the same. Is this the threshold to push your young patient or maybe your middle-aged patient to an ERCP for sampling in fish? And if the fish is positive, now, like, where are we? <laughs> right. So, um I would say that this is an, another area that's very difficult is quantifying the cholangiograms and has been really daunting um, all of us for a while. Typically in practice, you just have a radiologist looking at it and comparing the pictures and you might do it yourself and say, yeah, maybe it looks a little worse, a little better. Um, and there is some new technology being developed that can quantify these things and the strictures and all, but not really in clinical practice. So in practice, if it was just a mild change in the cholangiogram without any um, thickening of the duct or mass, you know, that would be more suspicious for cholangiocarcinoma, and there are no biochemical changes or clinical symptoms, I would probably not go forward to an ERCP. I would if, you know, there's some increase in the bilirubin, there's, you know, maybe CI-199's up or something like that, but just in a mild change in progression of the stricturing, I wouldn't leave, use that alone um, as a way to, to instrument someone. Yeah. Um, the question was whether we routinely fish, perform fish on all our brushings, and um, I was, no, no, I think, um, you know, that's, for us anyway, that's, and I don't do ERCP, it, it's not been um, something easy for us to um, uh, obtain, you know, sending it out and making sure it's adequate sampling and everything else. Um, we more frequently, if there's a question um, in terms of atypia, um, just repeat um, and do spyglass and, and, uh, and biopsies that way um, to, to try to be sure. We, we've done it in some cases, but more just frequent uh, monitoring is what we use. Do we need Last question. Yeah, <laughs> uh, good question. Yeah, no. Um, the question is whether we should be doing routine MRCP on our patients with just ulcerative colitis and normal liver tests. Um, and there are a couple of studies, the Norwegian study that uh, identified several patients with, uh, PS, with cholangiograms consistent with PSE among their ulcerative colitis patients. And Oxford, I think, is going to publish their data if they haven't already. Uh, that sh shows also you find a you know significant percentage, a minority, but a significant percentage that have changes consistent with PSC. And the question is, do they have PSC if they're not you know cholestatic, and is it just some leftover fibrosis from an earlier um, uh, event? So I would say at this point in clinical practice, I would not, but I would have a very low threshold to um, to perform one, obviously, in a patient with ulcerative colitis that had any abnormal liver tests. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.